Hey, it's Francis. Harold McGee is one of the truly game-changing food writers of this lifetime. He really changed how chefs and home cooks think about food. And here's a whole episode we dedicated to my conversation with him a few years ago. Enjoy it. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. When I was in culinary school, we didn't have many textbooks, per se. I mean, we did have this one enormous thousand-page cookbook that covered all the basic techniques we were supposed to learn. Funny enough, almost every chef in the school was like, oh, it's wrong about that. Oh, it's wrong about that. But (laughs) there weren't a whole lot of, you know, go home and read chapter three kinds of books. Except for one. That book is On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee. I'm not going to lie, it's not necessarily something you would curl up with before bed. It is full of research about myoglobin and peptide chains. But what McGee's book did for us, and by us, I mean cooks in general, is strip away the idea that cooking is a series of actions you do the way you're told because that's how it's always been done. It opened up the idea that cooking is actually, like everything else, science. It's understandable. It's not magic. If you apply this much heat to this egg, this is what's going to happen. And that knowledge freed generations of chefs to question why they did the things the way they did. And to break the rules once they learned what the rules were. It opened up so much creativity and innovation. Whether or not you cared for what people called molecular gastronomy or not, You can absolutely see the results of that creativity in what people eat every day. If you've heard of reverse searing or sous vide, or if you talk about developing gluten in bread dough, there's a good chance it's because someone read their McGee. And now Harold has a new book about a new passion, scent, smells, and how they work, how they appear, and how we understand them. And of course, scent is a huge part of flavor. So we were delighted that Harold would join us for the hour. We talked about his beginnings, how food has changed, and what scents can teach us, not just about what's delicious, but about life itself. Hey, Harold, it's great to talk with you. Hello, Francis. I knew of your work because I'd read On Food and Cooking, one of your books, in culinary school um, to learn about the science of food. And, you know, just as a fan, I remember seeing you in a restaurant in New York City. I didn't come say hi. I didn't want to bother you during your meal, but I remember you sitting at the bar and thinking, oh my God, that's Harold McGee. And then seeing the chef come out and just fall over himself to feed you. And I remember actually seeing that scene a couple times over time. And you were a total superstar. Chefs were turning to your research that helped them think about you know, how to rethink cooking. I think a lot of people would call that the molecular gastronomy era, where, you know, chefs were turning liquids into spheres and, you know, they were using tweezers in their cooking and all that stuff. But that book that everyone uses a reference on food and cooking first came out in 1984, I believe, in the mid-80s. That's right. And famously, you worked on it for 10 years. Can you actually take us back to that moment? Like, why did you write that book? And what was the reception at the time in the 80s from the food world? Well, uh, I started writing about uh, the science of cooking in the late 70s. And I did that because I wasn't able to get a job doing what I really wanted to do. (laughs) (laughs) Which Which was what? To teach poetry. (laughs) Oh, my God. And uh, I'd had some uh, a, a fair amount of science in my undergraduate work, and mm-hmm. my mentors at the university were helping me, uh, first of all, try to find a job and then think about alternatives, said, you know, you have that science in your background, you should, you should do something with that. And I'd been teaching writing, so I thought, well, you know, maybe I could start practicing what I've been preaching to my students and uh, write about the science of everyday life. 
that's the that was the idea that occurred to me uh, because mm-hmm. I wasn't a specialist in anything in particular and um, I had friends in science departments and in the literature departments and we would sometimes get together for potlucks and sometimes the only uh, conversational subject we all had in common was the food in front of us and you know what people mm. brought to the potlucks and uh, we were all you know beginning to learn about wine for the first time and that kind of thing and it just occurred to me that uh, th- there was something interesting there um, uh, and a friend of mine from New Orleans uh, at one point asked me why it was that um, beans made him uncomfortable a few hours after he overindulged in them <laughs> because okay. he really loved red beans and rice. I thought that was uh, a fun question. I went to the library and I found an answer. And I thought, okay, there's a subject here <laughs> that, uh, that has not been dealt with um, that perhaps I could deal with. And um, yeah, um, so, beans and digestion would have been a very a much more niche book. I'm glad you uh, that's right. Brought in beyond that. <laughs> yes, but things like that are great for you know uh, leavening um, a more solid uh, treatment mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. subject with with a little bit of fun. Anyway, um, I. Uh, put together a proposal to write a book about the science of cooking. And uh, a publisher in New York heard about it and um, asked about it and uh, did me the great favor of suggesting that I not simply make it either a technical manual or a Q&A kind of thing, but to include mm-hmm. something of the, the history, how we came to know what we know about food and cooking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, that gave me license to then go to the Schlesinger Library in Boston and spend hours just pulling books off the shelves back when you could do that uh, and learning about the the history of cooking as well as the science. And uh, it didn't take me 10 years. Um, it took me more like three or four back then, mainly because there was just not a lot known about the science mm. of, of cooking. So I didn't oh, have so much to, to cover. But I did have to do it the old-fashioned way. No computers, uh, electric typewriters, <laughs> uh, looking up uh, index volumes of journals and libraries and then going and finding the actual volume on the shelf and opening it up and finding out that there's nothing there worth <laughs> talking about. So it was, <laughs> it was kind of tedious. Um, but, uh, oh, but I You're making it. my eyes twitch right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, research has gotten uh, a lot easier since then. Uh, but then uh, it came out in 1984, and it was basically ignored. Um, it hmm. was uh, not a, an approach to food and cooking that um, resonated at the time. Nobody really paid much attention to it until, thank goodness, in uh, 1985, Mimi Sheraton had come across it and mm. devoted a piece in Time magazine to uh, to the book and to that, that way of thinking about food and cooking. And then people began to pay attention. <laughs> and uh, it ended up being um, adopted by the, the uh, culinary schools as a textbook. And that's how it found its way into the, uh, the mainstream of um, the culinary world. Oh, that's so interesting. And... What was the reception from the food world? I mean, obviously, if the culinary schools are starting to use it as a textbook, that's, I imagine, you know, personally for you, that felt super gratifying. But were there chefs reaching out to you? Were, you know, was there that kind of interest? Or was it just you know, somewhat more academic still? Uh, it, it actually took two forms. One was chefs reaching out and actually students reaching out much more than chefs. So, mm. again, this is the early 80s. Most of the chefs with names at the time were European-born, European-trained, and okay. uh, yeah, yeah. they already knew what they were doing. You know, so they and I met right. several of them, and they said, you know, that's that's an interesting book, but really has nothing to do with my day-to-day work. Um, right, right, right. The students who who were learning how all these things work and asking questions, why do it this way and not that way, they're the ones I really heard from the most. So there was that side of it. And then uh, on the more public side, uh, people thought it was funny that uh, science was being applied to cooking. 
So I was photographed a lot with my nose up against a, a graduated cylinder or a Bunsen burner, you know, holding <laughs> some piece of food in my in my hand, <laughs> because the juxtaposition of science and cooking in the home seemed so strange at the time. Yeah, I mean, well, well, I think. Correct me if you feel differently, but in my head, it's because I think, as a society, we didn't think that much of food, right? Like. It seemed almost ridiculous that someone would care enough to look at it from a scientific point of view. We didn't value food in that way. Certainly, everyone has always enjoyed eating tasty food, and certainly there were nice restaurants where you were, you know, you would be classy if you went there, or you would show off your your classiness if you're hosting people there. But I think the idea of food as an actual interest wasn't,、um, you know, hadn't taken hold, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true, and it's true not just of the the science side of things, but I had friends back then.、Uh, got to know people through a, a growing network,、um, people who、uh, wanted to write about the history of food or the、mm-hmm. sociology.、Uh, so many aspects of food that were simply not acceptable in the academy at that time because food was not a respectable subject. Period, and so. The people who were doing it back then were were really fighting against the the tide, and I I was lucky because you could kind of have fun with what I was doing.、Mm. You could you know have these these、um, uh, odd sorts of photo shoots and so on. But、um, <laughs> for people who were interested, had an academic interest in in food, it was really rough going for a good decade or two. Yeah. So at some point. You know, getting from the '80s to the period I'm talking about, the mid to, you know, the mid, what do we call them now? The mid 2000s. That's like <laughs> 2,500. But anyway, yeah, like 2005, 2006. Chefs are calling you. They're consulting with you. They're asking you to come to their, their conferences.、Um, you were like the oracle at Delphi, right, for the chef world. How did that feel? <laughs> Well, it it felt wonderful, of course,、um, but also、um, just a little bit unearned,、hmm. because、uh, so the, in two thousand four, two thousand five, the second edition of the book had come out, and that mm, okay, book okay. did take ten years, and it took ten years partly because、um, I had realized that、uh, the subject was important to the profession, and I hadn't realized that the first time around. I, I thought I was、mm, just writing for、okay. my friends. And you know other people who are just curious about the way the world works. When I saw how important it could be for the profession, then for the second edition, I really tried to make it as comprehensive as possible.、Um, but I wasn't cooking, you know. I I hadn't earned my stripes the hard way in <laughs> in kitchens,、uh, and so to be、uh, treated so wonderfully and respected so much by a profession where I actually hadn't. Practiced <laughs> the profession,、uh, felt a little a little jarring, and,、mm-hmm. and still does.、Um, I have to I have to say. That's food science writer Harold McGee, author of the classic on food and cooking, and his latest is Nosedive. We'll be back with more conversation with Harold in just a minute. I'm Francis Lam, and this is the Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild caught products are flash frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons. Easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a hundred percent satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket dot com and use promo code Splendid thirty five. Listeners receive thirty five dollars off their first order of a hundred dollars or more subscription or one time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka 
sitkaseafoodmarket.com and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. So we're spending this episode with the award-winning and, frankly, culinary world-changing author Harold McGee. He helped a revolution in cooking by unlocking all the mysteries, the scientific hows and whys of whisking, searing, simmering, and all the rest. And he's got a new book, Nosedive, about the science and philosophy of scent. Let's get back to our conversation. So tell us how you decided to, you know, take a not a total 180, but a little bit of a turn into a deep dive into the study of aroma. Well, uh, back in 2010, I uh, started work on what I thought was a book about flavor. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I write about food and drink. And uh, for me, flavor is the most fascinating aspect of uh, cooking and enjoying food. And sure. uh, I really wanted to uh, devote a whole book just to that. Um, in the process, I ended up uh, changing the focus for a couple of reasons. Um, one of them was that, um, of course, flavor is taste plus smell, but taste is a mm-hmm. relatively limited sense. Smell is where all the variety of food comes from. Uh, so I, I knew I was going to focus more on smell than on taste. And then mm-hmm. uh, once I did that, I be- began to um, be struck by the echoes among different aromas of foods. Uh, for example, Parmesan cheese smelling like uh, ripe pineapple sometimes. Mm, okay. um, and then by uh, the echoes of the larger world in foods. Um, so wine writers have the most advanced vocabulary for <laughs> describing aromas, and they talk about you know, flowery smells in wines. They talk about uh, sweaty saddle smells in wines. Those have nothing to do with, <laughs> with fermented grapes, but yet those, those uh, smells really are there. So that led me to ask the question, yeah, what yeah. are those smells doing in sweaty saddles or flowers? Um, and that ended up drawing me into this question, why do things in the world in general have the smells that they do? And... Uh, I, I took this dive that that required 10 years because uh, I knew food and drink, but I didn't know sweaty saddles or flowers, so I had to learn all that stuff. You know, I can find a sweaty saddle here in California, but finding someone who has studied the volatile molecules from a sweaty saddle, that's the real challenge. <laughs> May that person exist. Um, as you mentioned, smell is the vast majority of what we think of as flavor. That, that's really what contributes to flavor. Um, just as a, a basic statement, um, you know, taste, uh, saltiness, sweetness, bitterness, sourness, um, umami is generally included now. And there there are a couple other, like, maybe that's a taste, maybe that's a not kind of things going on. But almost everything else that we perceive as flavor comes from smell. And in the book, you write that smell has long been regarded, you know, in Western philosophy anyway, as, quote, the lowest sense. What does that mean? Well, it's true in uh, Western traditions that it's been considered, uh, you know, more reflective of our animal nature than of Mm. our higher Mm. nature. So, you know, we can, um, we can write, we can communicate with each other with sound. We can think of things that aren't right in front of us and draw pictures of them or um, compose music we can do things with those senses that we don't seem to be able to do with smell, which has more to do with uh, detecting what's around us, not necessarily something that we're actually creating and re- reflecting our, our human nature with. Mm. And oftentimes, smell uh, comes down to a matter of nice or not so nice. You know, um, uh, Oftentimes, we notice smells when they're disgusting, you know, and they, they get our sure. attention for that reason. And sure, we don't sure. have the same kind of uh, problems with, with vision and hearing. So s- smell just uh, ha- has seemed to be uh, much more grounded in our, uh, in physical necessity and, um, and therefore not as um, worthy of attention as sight and hearing. 
Oh, that's so interesting. But I love what you say. Um, you write a version of this in the book, and, and when we were chatting, you said this in this really beautiful way. You said, smell is the bridge between what we put in our bodies and what is in the world around us. And that really reforms the way I think about that sense. Um, what does that idea mean to you? Well, that's what helped explain for me why it was that I was getting these echoes of the rest of the world in, in food and drink. Uh, you know, we, we have to breathe many times a minute. Every time we take air in, we're also taking in molecules from the world around us. And um, if we pay attention to what those molecules are, uh, that is to say, pay attention to the, the smells we're detecting, then we learn mm -hmm. things about the world around us um, in that way that might not be evident by, by sight or by hearing. Uh, and then when we enjoy food and drink, um, we're also breathing, but we're breathing out instead of breathing in. And it's that breathing out, that exhalation, that brings molecules from our mouth into contact with our nose to help us uh, confirm and savor what it is that we've taken into our bodies. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it, it's fascinating to think of the fact that smells are physical, right? In the sense that they are actually made of matter. When you smell something, that means that thing is actually inside your body. Um, and in a way, even more amazing, it actually becomes part of us momentarily because what happens is that we have receptors in our nose that detect these molecules and they detect them by binding onto them by grabbing onto them and holding onto them and so for huh. that split second they're actually part of our body as much as the receptor is oh wow that's fascinating there's like so much metaphoric power in there and i know as a as a, a lover of poetry i'm sure like you totally <laughs> <laughs> are, are so geeked out by that. Um, you have this beautiful metaphor in the book about listening to smells rather than hearing them. Can you explain that to us? Yes. Uh, I, I learned about this way of um, experiencing smells when I went to Japan and had the opportunity to experience um, the incense ceremony that they have there, which is mm. in a way parallel to the tea ceremony, where you uh, really pay attention to the making and the enjoyment of a cup of tea. Uh, mm -hmm. They do the same kind of thing with incense. Uh, they take a little piece of incense wood and they put it by itself on a very carefully constructed little platform that allows the, the aroma of the incense to predominate so it's not clouded by the smell of smoke and that kind of thing. Um, and you pay attention to it, you register it, you think of what it smells like, and then you take another piece of incense wood that's different, and you appreciate that, and then appreciate the differences. And the term that the Japanese use is translated into English as listening to smells. Mm. And at first I thought that was, uh, you know, an unfortunate uh, Necessity, uh, I mean, the English language just doesn't have a good word for paying attention to smells. But then I thought it's that, uh, that incongruity that I think helps enforce the fact that uh, when we smell things, we're usually not really paying attention. And right. so listening to smells is like uh, listening to a sound instead of hearing it. Hearing is kind of passive and, you know, by the way, listening, you're paying attention, you're getting information, you're registering mm -hmm. it, um, and we can do the same thing with smells. Yeah. And what do you find when you sort of practice scent that way? Well, it, it depends completely on the what, what it is that I'm... Uh, uh, paying attention to, but usually what happens is that um, there's a kind of initial overall impression, uh, mm -hmm. which which then begins to um, show different sides of itself, uh, different uh, nuances. And one mm -hmm. of the things I, I try to um, explain in the book is that uh, even though we think of the smell of incense or the smell of... Uh, a pine needle or something like that as 
as a smell. In fact, uh, all smells are composites. So they're, they're more like chords in music uh, rather than single notes. There's not a single pine note, but there are a number of notes that together come together in the chord that tells us that we're standing under a pine tree. And um, the, the more you focus on a particular smell and stay with it, uh, the more that overall mm-hmm. chord begins to fragment a little bit and you can get a, a sense for the, the different components that make it up. Oh, I love that. So it's like you sort of can dig into it a little bit more and kind of identify it, not just as pine, but what is it about this aroma specifically that makes you not just identify it as pine, but sort of learn and lean into it? It is actually, you know, this is probably literally the same thing we do when when I think of really savoring food, right? When you just let yourself focus on what you're chewing, what you're tasting, therefore to your point, what you're smelling, you're actually giving yourself permission or compelling yourself to really sit and focus on that flavor. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's uh, exactly it. Um, and in fact, what I um, uh, realized at some point was that I was taking my background in food and that, that very uh, experience that you're just describing, uh, paying attention to uh, something that's either special because it's um, been made in a nice restaurant or it's an expensive ingredient or because someone important to you has just made it or because you're mm-hmm. making it for the first time and you want to see yeah, whether yeah. you got it right. That, that same kind of attention, uh, savoring, can be applied to everything in the world. You know, we can, we can take that same, the, the same attention that we give to foods that we love and give it to the things around us and get to know them better and and kind of bring them into the database of our experiences so that the next time we have that resonance to, to work with, we have those connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's so interesting. I, I um, So I also used to teach writing, and there was a student who I really loved. He had a lot of crackpot ideas um, and was a little, a little bit arrogant about them. But... <laughs> But he once said this thing that I'll never forget. And he said that, well, I think writers are better livers of life. Well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, if you're a writer, that means you're constantly looking at the world around you and you're trying to really freeze the scene. You're trying to really take in the scene, remember the scene, remember the conversation so that you can write them down later. And because you're approaching the world that way, you are quote unquote living about, you know living life better. You're taking more of it in. So I had lots of I had lots of problems with how he characterized that. But there is something to that idea. I think of if you're just opening your mind and opening your senses up to the world and just letting yourself be in a literal way sensitive to what you're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, whatever, um, and just trying to like sit with them and process them and hold space for them. Um, it really just makes the world that much richer. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that uh, modern-day neuroscience has uh, been kind of developing in spades is uh, how little of the world we're actually aware of at any given moment, Mm. how much the brain is screening out of our consciousness because, you know, we're on a mission to... Uh, make a Zoom call or to get a cup of coffee or whatever it happens to be. We're, we're, we're purposeful, and so the brain tends to screen out anything that's not relevant to our achieving that purpose. So there's okay. just all kinds of stuff going on around us that, uh, that we're simply not aware of unless we choose to uh, kind of uh, force our brains to pay attention and and that's i think what the incense ceremony the tea ceremony and things like that do is that they they kind of restrict all the um other things going on in the world all the distractions mm-hmm. uh to let you focus on one particular thing and see how much there is in that one particular thing yeah i love it and yeah i i am just as guilty as everyone else of you're trying to get from point A to point B, get this thing done, get that thing done. But 
I mean, I, you know, we're talking all this, we're talking all of this, and like at the end of the day, it's a, there's a very simple cliche for it, which is literally stop and smell the roses, right? Like that's really what we're talking about. Yeah, I would say though, stop and smell the roses and everything else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get to cooking. Um, you know, there's this pretty compelling theory that cooking food is what makes us human, right? Uh, I think you've probably heard this before. Um, the subject of a best-selling book a number of years ago. Uh, the idea is that because cooking makes food more digestible, we were able to you know, access nutrients super efficiently, and then that excess of nutrients allowed our brains to evolve and, and all that. And while it wouldn't have been obvious to early humans, you do have a thought as to maybe why they were doing it. Yeah, so uh, I, I think the the cooking hypothesis is is a really strong one and i'm uh even though there are still some obstacles to uh really demonstrating it i think it's it is the right idea but you know an average human being uh at any given moment is not really aware of the long term consequences of sure. what they're doing at that particular moment and so it it really can't be that uh a, a a human being around the time that we learned how to control fire would know, okay, let's, let's cook our foods because that way we're going to uh, be better nourished. What would have occurred to them was, wow, this smells amazing. <laughs> mm. I've never smelled anything like this before. Uh, you know, uh, and it doesn't, didn't even have to be intentional. You, know, you, leave a, you kill an animal and you leave it next to the campfire and part of it just gets warm and it's going to smell different. And then if somebody spills a piece into the fire, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be, um, uh, it's gonna be uh, just an explosion of aroma. So my feeling is that um, the, the sensory appeal of cooked foods had to have played a really important role in the initial adoption of, of cooking. It just, it just made life much more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly buy that because I know what cooked meat smells like and how it smells great. But, you know, one thing I've also thought about a lot is how very few things are innately pleasurable and innately, you know, non-pleasurable, right? Like most things we learn to love and appreciate or learn to find disgusting and gross. Um, at least I think that's true. Uh, so, you know, you know, sweet things I've heard babies are naturally attracted to sweet things because sweetness suggests sugar, which says there's calories. And so the body just knows it wants that kind of thing. But although the aromas may have been stronger, it's not clear that they would have necessarily smelled better, right? Like, how does, how does that work? Yeah. So uh, some really interesting experiments have been done with, uh, with other animals, with primates, with dogs. Um, I'm trying to remember now which other mammals have been used. But uh, experiments have been done to show that if you give an animal uh, a choice between a raw food that it already likes and is willing to eat mm -hmm. and a cooked version of that same food, they will take the cooked one. Really? Yes. So, um, and, and I think probably the same would have been true for us back in the day. And, and I think the, I mean, this is hypothesis, of course, but I think one of the reasons may simply be that uh, the sensory experience of cooked foods is just richer, stronger, if you'd, if you'd like to mm. use that word, uh, you know, makes more of an impression. Okay. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, we're, we're animals. We have these senses to be stimulated, you know, uh, they're there for, uh, a reason and oftentimes they're not being stimulated. So if you have the chance to have something that really does, uh, you know, gobsmack you <laughs> with its flavor, uh, that's going to be interesting and maybe more interesting than kind of chewing for 20 minutes on one tuber <laughs> to get it down. <laughs> <laughs> That's Harold McGee, author of the classic food science Bible on food and cooking. And his new book, 
Nosedive. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with more with him in just a minute. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Our show is supported by Sitka Seafood Market. With Sitka Seafood Market, you can receive premium, sustainably harvested seafood from small boat fishermen and community processors shipped right to your door. Their wild-caught products are flash-frozen within hours of harvest, ensuring freshness and flavor. And Sitka Seafood offers flexible monthly or bi-monthly subscriptions, but you're never stuck with anything you don't want. They allow product swaps, special add-ons, easy pausing or cancellation, and they're backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Members can also access exclusive benefits, recipes, and cooking tips. Not ready to commit to a subscription? No problem. They have one-time boxes that showcase seasonal, festive, and popular varieties without commitment. Promoting the dietary guidelines supported by the American Heart Association, Sitka Seafood Market emphasizes seafood's heart-healthy benefits. They're rich in omega-3 fatty acids and lean proteins. Start your free online visit today at sitkaseafoodmarket.com and use promo code SPLENDID35. Listeners receive $35 off their first order of $100 or more, subscription, or one-time box. Offer cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. And that's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, seafoodmarket.com, and promo code SPLENDID35. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're spending this episode with the food science writer Harold McGee, whose newest book is Nosedive. It's a 10-year project on the science of scent. We've talked about his own beginnings, how he's seen the cooking world change, and we share his fascination with the sense of flavor, why we love some and hate others. Let's get back to our conversation. Why does cooking tend to boost aroma and flavor? Well, it's because uh, we we eat living things for the most part, you know, plant and animal tissues, and they're mm-hmm. built up of um, very large molecules, uh, proteins, carbohydrates, fats, uh, which in and of themselves don't have smells. They're they're not aromatic because, in order for something to have a smell, it has to be a small enough molecule that it can escape whatever it's in and fly through the air and end up being inhaled into our nose. Mm, And proteins, carbohydrates, fats, they're they're just way, way too big. But what cooking does, what fermentation does, um, is break those large molecules down into smaller ones, small enough sometimes that they're actually small enough to leave the the material and fly through the air and into our noses and so it's that that breaking down of the the um, basic materials of the food into smaller molecules that generates that uh, that greater flavor oh interesting that's so interesting about how raw things don't typically have that much smell but what about I mean, I, I think about this summer. It was a great year for peaches. Um, and I just remember coming home and just there being peaches I could smell the moment I walk into the apartment or melons. Um, tell us about fruit then. Like, why does fruit tend to have such extraordinarily strong aroma? Yeah. So fruits are, um, they're uh, essentially foods that have been cooked up for us by plants. <laughs> hmm. uh, that is to say, they're, they're uh, plant tissues that are designed by the plant to be attractive to animals. So that an animal will come along when the fruit is ripe and take the fruit sure. someplace and eat the fleshy part and leave the seed behind the seed can then germinate and um, become a new plant far enough away from the parent that it's not going to be competition. So it's, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's, it's an inducement, and it's a, a signal. You know, a, a, an unripe peach has no aroma whatsoever. When the peach is ripe, uh, this whole system goes into uh, overdrive to generate aroma, to push it out into the air. Lots and lots of these small volatile molecules uh, precisely to get our attention and to get us to eat it and and enjoy it. It's funny too that, but then also like seeds themselves have lots of aroma and flavor, and that's not really the part. <laughs> I, 
I know I, it, it's tricky to talk about these in these terms because um, what you're describing, I think, is you know a depiction of evolutionary advantage or, or, or advantage is gained through evolution. But um, you know, fruits and vegetables and plants don't, they don't have agency. They didn't like they, they didn't like decide one day. Here's our plan. You know, it happens through natural selection. But um, it's funny to hear you say that because I think of how I've just been really into eating seeds lately. <laughs> <laughs> but like that's not actually the part that the plant wants me to chew up and like you know destroy. <laughs> that's so, right. So t- tell me, tell us about how seeds and you know spices came to have such aromas as well. Well, actually, let let's stay with that peach that you enjoyed so much because uh, have you ever uh, cracked open the pit of a peach and chewed on the seed mm-hmm. inside? There's, yeah, and there's like a what is it? Uh, what does it taste like? It's not actually a bitter almond, but it's it looks and tastes like bitter almond, right? Yeah, yeah, that... yeah, yeah. It tastes like uh, almond essence. Uh, most people have never had the chance to taste a, a true bitter almond, but it's the it's that smell of you know the almond essence you can buy in the grocery store and then add to your uh, your baked goods and so on. And the reason it's actually uh, that we don't have bitter almonds for the most part, and the reason that people sell that essence is that that aroma, the aroma of bitter almond, goes hand in hand in the peach pit with um, cyanide. <laughs> so oh, okay. In, <laughs> glad I don't eat it that much. In the peach pit um, and in bitter almonds, that aroma, which we find so wonderful and use in all kinds of, uh, of dishes, uh, is there as a warning signal. You're, you're going to die if you eat this. <laughs> <laughs> Now you tell me. <laughs> so, uh, so that's why we separate the aroma from the cyanide in order to make the the essence in the in the grocery store. So it's true that plants protect their seeds because the seeds are uh, are their offspring. You know, they 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 do what they can. But the thing is that we human beings, being as uh, inventive and insatiable as we are, have found ways around those defenses or have found ways actually to enjoy those, uh, what amounts to chemical weapons, uh, mm. either by <laughs> separating uh, the smell from the weapon itself, in the case of uh, uh, peaches and almonds, or in the case of spices, we use spices uh, and herbs uh, to add flavor to other foods. We don't eat them whole, just by themselves. And it's a, mm-hmm. actually a, an interesting experiment to do, to you know, take a, a handful of thyme and put it in your mouth and see what it's like. It's, uh, <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> but in, in uh, you know, homeopathic doses in a stew, it does wonderful things by adding a layer of complexity and, and aroma that wasn't there before. So we've found ways to use these weapons uh, to our advantage and to to make eating and and drinking more interesting. Yeah. Um my wife absolutely despises celery. Why do so many people hate celery? <laughs> ah, that's a a good question and a question that I deliberately sidestep in <laughs> in my book. <laughs> Because, because you has, don't want to offend her, that's fine. Uh, uh, it has to do with with perception and preference, and what uh, that's that's yeah that's a, a hornet's nest. So I, what I wanted to do is just provide a field guide of what's out there, whether or not you like it, <laughs> is your business. Um, celery actually has a molecule called sotolon, S O T O L O N which is generated when celery is cooked in a sofrito or, you know, many of the kind of pre-seasonings that, uh, that inform uh, Western European cooking. Uh, and it turns out that that, uh, that molecule is uh, it's found in lots of different things, including fenugreek, including maple syrup. Mm. Uh, it's a kind of uh, caramel sweet aroma that that you don't get from celery when it's raw and crunchy. But if you cook it gently, it provides that that kind of sweet note. And uh, uh, there's a a seasoning uh, in Europe, Maggi, uh, M-A-G-G-I, which is a a soup stock. Oh, God, I love that stuff. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, the um, relative of celery grown in Europe called lovage, which is like celery mm-hmm. on steroids, uh, is actually called Magikraut in in Germany because okay. it it um, develops that aroma of a of a seasoned broth all by itself. So it's known as the the, the you know. Uh, well, there's, I guess there's really no English equivalent. You know, it's it's taking a brand name and applying it to a plant, where the plant was the first one to <laughs> to provide that that sensation in the first place. Meaning, if you take lovage and you just cook it by itself uh-huh. in in water, yeah, it, it creates a well. And actually, celery does as well, but but lovage much more so, in a much much greater quantity. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, actually, the, I, I I love hearing you say this because um, my wife, who the celery hater, despises the scent of it. Like when I bring it in the house, if I'm cutting it and she smells it, she's like, why did you bring that here? What are you doing to me? But <laughs> she will eat it when cooked. Uh-huh. And um, I, don't, I don't know if the cooking, you know, breaks down the, the scent that she doesn't like, the aroma, the flavor she doesn't like. Or maybe she does like the, like you said, that sort of sweet, mapley, fenugreek kind of flavor that develops in celery when you cook it. Um, yeah. Well, in fact, uh, the, the molecules that, that give you the, the kind of um, classic celery aroma are the ones that get broken down in order to make the sweet, fenugreek maple syrupy aroma. So you're losing the celery and uh, gaining the the sweet. And so I think mm. that's exactly why she will, will tolerate it cooked, but can't tolerate it raw. Oh, it's fascinating. I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the connections um, between aromas. Like you, like you mentioned almonds and peach pits. Um, I was a little bit blown away when I read in your book that cooked chicken, simply cooked chicken can smell a little bit inherently like fried chicken because chicken contains a molecule that's produced when you heat cooking oil. And I, I, it, right away, I don't know even why I remember this, but I do remember at one point eating a potato chip and going, why does this potato chip taste like fried chicken? I was wondering, you know, maybe they had some like, you know, secret seasoning on it or whatever, but it was just a potato chip. And so maybe it was that connection between heated oil and whatever the molecule was in chicken. What are some other like, chemical connections across different foods you found that surprised you? Uh, well, um, so I have a, a couple of favorite molecules that, that tend to pop up in, <laughs> in places that you don't necessarily expect them. Uh, and one of those is something called methylbutanal. So it's, it's just a, a small five carbon molecule. Um, and it is a, a key component in the aromas of chocolate and cocoa, mm-hmm. um, okay. but also soy sauce. Okay. And it's also generated in kind of background quantities almost any time you cook a food with um, with protein in it, so any kind of meat or fish or uh, oh, interesting nuts. So it's it, it's really prominent in cocoa. And if you smell that molecule all by itself, which I've done, the first thing you think of is cocoa. Uh, but then take a sniff next time you you use soy sauce. Just take a little bit and take it. Take a sip and uh, and think cocoa. And I think you'll you'll see the connection, uh, and then that kind of thing in in much smaller quantities enriches the aroma of many many uh, foods that we have. It's also really important, um, uh, in, especially in in Asian cooking, because it's really dominant in malt syrups and sugars, mm. uh, and um, malted barley, for example. So it's broken off of proteins, and so that's why you find it in these um, materials mostly made from seeds or from from animal materials. Um, okay. But yeah, because cocoa is made from a seed, right? And, yeah. 
and soy oh, sauce so from, from soybeans, but, you know, treated very differently, and yet that same molecule pops up. And do you feel like that, um, like learning about that, does that, do you feel like that's a way of, does that help your cooking or does that help the art of cooking? Does that say to you, okay, what that means is we should be putting cocoa and soy sauce and meat together? <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, no, it's, um, for me, the value of uh, reading about these kinds of things and uh, at least uh, not necessary to, to remember any of these names or uh, where things appear. It's just that um, knowing that they're there, knowing that there are these notes in different foods which get shared across uh, kinds of preparations or, or even uh, genres of things in the world uh, just sharpens your attention so that you mm. uh you can you know you can you can be looking for them and not find them and that's fine uh you can be looking for them and find them you can be not looking for them and all of a sudden that kind of that note pops out of the cord mm -hmm. and, and just the same with you and uh, the the chickeny note in in the potato chip you're you're yeah, getting yeah, yeah. a little hint of something real going on there that there is this shared um component in those flavors and it's for the for that instant become really evident and then it's going to go away <laughs> yeah there's something so beautiful about that right the ephemeral nature of it's just there's just so much wonder in the world right and it's 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 thrilling to know that sometimes that thing you were wondering was in fact there and even if it is or isn't just keeping your mind open and keeping your your senses open to to letting the world reveal itself in these little tiny mysteries is it's really a great part of living yeah no i i, I think it um it well for me anyway it has added a lot and and not just to food and cooking but to uh just going for runs uh going to the seashore I just um, it, it's there's a lot going on and uh, a lot worth paying attention to if if you have the the bandwidth to do it. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It's a lot of what poetry does too. Thank you so much, Harold. It's been so fun talking with you. Thank you, Francis. It's been great for me too. Harold McGee is the author of Nosedive, a field guide to the world's smells. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. APM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Schaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table is created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lukey, producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. <laughs>